Well, if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 9 this morning, Romans chapter 9. Uh, we have uh, rounded our way into the second half of the book of Romans. Uh, the transition from chapter 8 into chapter 9 is a pretty important one for the book of Romans, although I don't want to play it up too much as if somehow there was a, a chapter division, a, a blank page in between the two, and we're starting over. Paul, even as he begins to work into what are some complex discussions in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's still reflecting on what he's been saying in the first eight chapters, as I think you'll see as we read from it this week. For eight chapters, Paul has been arguing that God is doing something new within his promises, not abandoning those promises that he had made, but now fulfilling them in Christ, how he was pouring out his spirit And how he was giving his people a new and a better assurance, the hope, the faith that they have in him by believing through Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But for Paul, that raises a natural question, both for himself and one that he was probably anticipating that his listeners would have been asking, hearing all that he had been saying in these first eight chapters. That question would have been something like, well, what about the Jews? What about your promise to the Jews? What about your faithfulness to Israel? What about their future in light of this new way that you're working? What does it mean that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, but that most of Israel had refused to accept him as that long-awaited Messiah? For Paul, this is a personal question. Paul is still very much a Jew and understood himself to be one. He was a formally trained Jew by his birth, his ethnicity, his education, but he also very much still practiced within the Jewish context. Most of those first century Christians who came with Jewish backgrounds continued to show up in synagogues, continued to go to Jerusalem, as Paul would do himself as part of his journeys. We looked at that in Acts not too long ago. So for Paul, this question is a personal and an important one. And honestly, it's at the center of so much of the controversy about what Paul has been doing and who he is, his work amongst the Gentiles. Have you abandoned your Jewish identity, Paul? Has God abandoned his promises to the Jewish people? So Paul turns to that question in chapter 9, and it's going to carry him in even to the chapters after chapter 9. But what I want to do this morning is read you the whole chapter, chapter 9. I, uh, I promised you we would be picking up the pace. I spent three weeks on chapter 8. We're going to knock out all of chapter 9 today. Uh, so a little bit of a long reading, but I think you'll see for Paul, this is big, one big thought that's really important to hold together to understand what Paul is saying. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. And the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, 
About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans chapter 9. I know it's a long reading, but hopefully you remember back to those opening words that Paul uses to take up this topic. The purpose of writing about the future of Israel is so important to Paul that he opens this topic up by saying, verse 2, that he's experiencing this question as great sorrow and anguish of heart. In fact, Paul actually says that if he could, he would be cut off from Christ for the sake of all of his kinsmen, all of Israel, to be able to receive Christ. 
Um, if you remember a couple of years ago when we were preaching through the book of Acts, one of the things we looked at often, uh, it's right there at the center of the story, was how Paul would go into new cities and how we would go about preaching Christ and the gospel within those cities. And almost without fail, Paul's first move was to go to the synagogues. Paul would very first go to those Jewish believers he had most in common with. He would sit down in the midst of the synagogue and explain to them how Christ was a fulfillment of all they had been looking and waiting for. Um, If you remember that part of Acts, you also probably remember that more often than not, he was kicked out or run out of the synagogue or chased out of town by those Jews who rejected his message. Paul would then inevitably take that message to the public square and begin presenting it to the Gentiles, where often he won converts, both of the Gentiles and of believers within the synagogues. What's interesting is that experience of being so often persecuted by his own people, driven out by those people who should have been prepared most to hear his message, Paul does not become bitter or hardened toward his people. Instead, he says that his heart aches with sorrow for the fact that so many of them have not recognized Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of their deepest longings and hopes. So many of his Jewish brothers and sisters had refused that message. They'd seen him as a heretic, maybe a nuisance. They'd gotten rid of Paul and his message as quickly as possible. And for Paul, it was not a hardness of heart, but a brokenness of heart that it brought about. Some of you who have experienced long periods of time with unsaved family members, those who you have longed for to hear that message, you've prayed for for years of your life, you know what Paul is describing when he talks about the great sorrow and the anguish of heart. For Paul, this question about the future of the Jews is not a question of abstract theology, right? It's not just an in-time prediction. For Paul, this is a personal question that troubles him in the deepest of places. The thing which matters most to him in the whole world, the thing which his own Jewish identity is at the center of, the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of those promises and hopes, his own people, his own family struggle to recognize like he has. So Paul anticipates a kind of wrong conclusion that particularly amongst the Gentiles, but even some of those Jewish Christians who are now believing, might have drawn about this broad rejection that Israel had of Jesus. Paul says in verse 6, anticipating the question, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, you could imagine some saying this, all of those years that God gave his attention and his focus to Israel, how many times did he forgive them when they grumbled and complained, when they turned their backs on him? God finally sends their Messiah to him, and they reject him, both in the flesh and now in the preaching of his good news. So some might have said, all of that favor that they had, the law and the prophets and the teaching and the history, it had failed them. It made it harder for them to recognize Jesus, not easier. Maybe all those traditions and stories about God's faithfulness was the worst for them. There's an old and dangerous kind of anti-Semitism that too often creeps into believers thinking that, that somehow it was the Jewishness that made them hostile to Christ, that made them worse off for receiving Christ. And Paul says very clearly at the beginning of this chapter, it is not as though God's word had failed his people. The answer to this question, why have so many of the Jews rejected Christ, is not because God had failed them, not that their Jewishness somehow made it more difficult for them to recognize Jesus. 
Instead, what Paul does, I think pretty shrewdly, if I could say, is he turns to Israel's own history to show the way that God often works in ways that we don't understand or comprehend in the moments. And Paul gives several examples of that. The first two, maybe the most obvious, are Abraham and Isaac. He explains in verse 7, which is a really remarkable claim. I don't know if this one stood out to you, but in verse 7 he says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, that's a big point Paul is making to somebody who's a Jew, because you understood yourself to be a Jew precisely because you were one in the lineage of Abraham. You were a part of Abraham's covenant family. So for Paul to say that not just because you're a child of Abraham, it does not mean you are necessarily a part of his offspring, Paul has to explain that a little bit, but he's on good ground. Um, If you remember Abraham's story, uh, our kids have actually learned it not too long ago in kids' church, which, by the way, I was watching all the kids come in this morning. We might have more kids here this Sunday than we do adults. So thank you, grandparents and parents. Uh, They just kept coming in this morning, which I was excited about. One of the things they've been talking about, I've heard from my own kids in months past, has been this great story of Abraham. Abraham was promised by God a son. But to Abraham, that seemed more like a joke than a promise because he and his wife were nearly 100 years old. How is it that Sarah could have a child at age 100? So the two of them got clever, and they decided to produce their own son through their servant, Hagar. Sure enough, Hagar bore a son to Abraham named Ishmael. Now, technically, that is the first descendant of Abraham. It is also by being first the one who received the birthright, the inheritance. This is Abraham's first son. And initially, they were very proud of the fact that Abraham now had a descendant, that all of his promises and blessings would flow too. The problem was this was not God's plan. God's plan was for them to hold on to that promise. And sure enough, at age 100, Sarah bore a second son to Abraham named Isaac. Now, what Paul points out here is that Isaac, though he's not the firstborn, the one that rightfully inherits from Abraham, that this had been the one to whom God had given the promise. And although God watches out and protects Ishmael, his work with Israel as Israel's people will flow not as it should have been through the firstborn, Ishmael, but through the secondborn, the child of God's promise, Isaac. Abraham then goes on, or Paul then goes on and says, besides Abraham, it's also true of another story. It's true of the story of Isaac. Isaac, as you remember, another famous story from the Old Testament, Isaac and Rebekah have two sons. But these two sons, unlike Ishmael and and, uh, Isaac, who are born by separate mothers, these two sons are born as twins to the same mother. So you get the stories of Esau and Jacob. Now, what's interesting here, though, is though they're born as twins, Esau, maybe you remember, is born just moments before Jacob is born, which in the uh, laws of inheritance might as well have been 20 years difference. Esau was the firstborn, therefore his was the promise, the inheritance. But Paul points out there had been a promise to the boy's mothers, that the younger would serve the older. That God, not because of one being good and one being bad, but by God's sovereign choice, he had already chosen that he would work through Jacob, not Esau. So why does Paul bring these two stories up? Two families, two sets of inheritance that instead of going the way we would expect, by God's decision, go an unexpected way. What Paul is doing is pointing out that the family of God, 
Israel. These are the forefathers of Israel, the patriarchs. Remember that little phrase that comes up all the time? Our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You track your identity back to these names. But Paul points out that even though technically that lineage should have gone Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, it doesn't. God, by his sovereignty, chooses to work through Isaac, chooses to work through Jacob. And so Paul draws the conclusion, if you really want to get technical about it, the people of God are not those who are simply descendants of Abraham, descendants of Isaac. The promise, the people of God, flows through God's sovereign choice to who he gives that promise. God chooses one son to work through, not because that son was better or more righteous, in fact, before they were even born. In the same way, you can think about Israel's own history. God chose a nation to bring about his identity, to reveal his law, not because Israel was a more powerful nation than the rest, quite the opposite, not because Israel was somehow a holy nation, more often than not they got it wrong and turned on God, but by his sovereign choice he picks this ragtag of slaves named Israel and chooses to pour out and reveal his identity through them. So Paul can say that the true Israel has never been one just of ethnicity or bloodline. But the true Israel has been God's sovereign choice by which to work with a people, a son, whom we might not have expected. Now, some will object to this, and Paul anticipates it again. Look at verse 17. Is there injustice on God's part? Some might say, isn't this unfair that God would choose Jacob and not Esau? that he would choose Isaac and not Ishmael, that he would pick Israel and not hold off 2,000 years and pick the United States? Why couldn't we be those blessed people? Wouldn't it have been so much easier if we could have gotten picked? Is it not unfair that God would pick one nation, would pick one son to carry out his promise? Now, this is a really important question in this chapter. And I think if you spent several days rereading this chapter over and over, you'll recognize that when Paul pitches this question, the pace and the mood of the chapter changes. It's subtle, but I think Paul recognizes something really dangerous in this question that he poses. Because in this question is more than just the simple question that meets the eye. Is there injustice on God's part, is the question. In other words, that question is something like, is God being fair? For Paul, this changes the conversation pretty drastically. Can we judge what is fair, what is just and unjust on God's part? Can man step back and look at what God has done throughout history, throughout nations, and decide what was right and what was wrong, what was fair and what was unfair about what God has chosen to do? Can we pick what should have happened, which son should have gotten the blessing, or which nation would have been better than Israel? And if so, what would we have based those decisions on? Tradition, ethnicity, obedience, the one who appears maybe more righteous than the other? Are we in a position to step back and decide what should have happened or shouldn't? What Paul tries to do with the rest of this chapter is prove to you the absurdity of that question itself. Is it even possible for us to understand what should and shouldn't happen what's right and what's wrong for God and his choices. The way Paul does that is he's going to give us yet another illustration. He starts piling these up. Here's his goal. 
He's going to use the Old Testament story of the Exodus. And he's going to complicate things for you to the point that by the end, you start to recognize the absurdity of the question, thinking that you could read the story and figure out what God should have done that would have been better, that would have made more sense, that would have been more fair in your opinion. So look at what Paul says in verse 15. For he says to Moses, this is Paul explaining why it's not fair for you to say what would have been fair for God to do. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, when you first read that sentence, that sounds like uh, God is drawing a very clear line in the sand, right? Who are you to question me? I'll choose who I have mercy on. I'll choose who I have compassion on. But Paul's linking back to something in the Old Testament that's bigger than just God drawing a line in the sand. And most of his audience would have immediately recognized that Paul is quoting directly from Exodus 33, a really important chapter, 32 and 33, in the history of Israel as a people. Chapter 32 was when Paul, or when Moses had gone, on, gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the law and had found out that while he was receiving the law from God, that beneath the mountain, what was Israel doing? They were casting all of their gold into the fires and making an idol to be able to worship a God that they had created. Chapter 32 is a giant stop in the story, having just been rescued and delivered by unbelievable miracles, by the power of God, Israel almost immediately turns their back and decides to choose a different God that they could create for themselves. It is a massive, probably the failure that all other failures of Israel's history reflect back on in some way, and in some ways all of our own failures represent as well. Having received from God, still nonetheless, we want our own way, our own path, our own way of doing it. Chapter 33 then has Moses going back to talk to God, And pleading with him, saying, if you don't go with us, we have no hope. And God telling Moses, how can I go with these people? My holiness will consume them if I try to be in their midst while they rebel against me. In other words, we start thinking, this is the end of this story. (laughs) They have done it. Maybe Moses gets kept, but God's going to start over, which sometimes he even talks about. I'll start over with you, Moses, and a new people, a new promise. But Moses says, please do not abandon us. And God says in response to him, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. Which at first glance is not the warm, fuzzy feeling we would like to have in that story. We would rather have God say, you know what, you're right, Moses, I'm going to love these people even though they are stiff-necked and difficult. Instead, God says to him, I, by my sovereignty, will choose how I will treat this people. And what we find in the rest of that chapter and the following is that God begins to give to Moses the requirements by which he will continue to live amongst his people, how they must sacrifice, how they must worship, how they must construct the tabernacle that will hold his presence as he goes with them. In other words, Moses doesn't walk away from that encounter saying, I was pretty good in those negotiations. I rescued you, Israel. He walks away saying that this God is one who is sovereign and chooses and will be amongst his people, not because they deserved it, nor did I barter or pray properly for it, but because he will choose who he will show mercy to. And in this case, he does in fact show unbelievable mercy time after time to Israel in spite of their failures. When Paul references that verse, his audience would have remembered this story well enough to know 
that everything that played out from that moment on in Israel's history was about God's mercy to his people. God, from the very beginning, having rescued his people, established that everything that would happen in the trajectory of Israel's future was based on the kindness and the mercy that he had showed to them. Had he chosen not to be merciful, their story would have ended a few miles out of Egypt at Mount Sinai when they cast a golden calf and turned their back on him. But their story continues. Not that Israel could have claim on it, not because they could prove how well they had earned it, but because God, by his sovereignty, would choose to show mercy. There's more. Paul then drops a Pharaoh reference into the story, which has been the frustration of this chapter. Just be honest. It's the one that drives you crazy about this chapter, hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he can use his as an instrument of destruction, right? This whole idea we start getting uncomfortable with. But here's Paul's point. Paul says in verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's a really interesting thing to say about Pharaoh. We expect God at Mount Sinai to abandon his people, but instead he shows mercy on them. Verse 17, Paul says that Pharaoh defies God, stands up against God, refuses to acknowledge him as superior, And what does Pharaoh's defiance do? It actually serves God's purposes by allowing God to demonstrate his power and to proclaim his name in an even greater way to all of the earth. In other words, what Paul says is that the more Pharaoh rebelled, the more God's power and character were put on display for the world to see. Determined to defy God, Pharaoh only ended up elevating God, showing more of God, giving God more of a chance to demonstrate his love for his people and his promise. God ends up looking more powerful because of Pharaoh's defiance and determination to look powerful. Now, the point of this, I said, is this should be getting more and more complicated as Paul unpacks these illustrations. Isaac is the promise, Jacob is the promise. Israel is shown mercy when they did not deserve mercy. Pharaoh's rebellion actually serves to highlight God's power and make God look more powerful. Remember the question that sparked this whole chapter. You want to decide what is fair. You think you know what is best and what God should do, what is just and unjust of God's behavior. You would have picked Ishmael. It seems more fair and the kinder thing to do. I mean, come on, he was the firstborn. You would have picked Esau, because by the rules, he was born before Jacob. You would have punished Israel. They deserved it. They needed the lesson. Right out of the gate, how could they abandon God? They didn't deserve God's salvation. And you would have gone on imagining that the more Pharaoh puffed his chest in rebellion, the worse it looked. Who could have imagined that the more pride he had the better God would look in the end. You would have found Pharaoh's rebellion to be a difficulty, a challenge, a hard part of the story, not a tool by which God would reveal his glory in even greater ways. Do you remember when Samuel, that spirit-filled prophet, the days of Saul and David, when he went to appoint a new king after Saul, he was told that it was one of Jesse's sons. Jesse began to parade his sons in front of him, And the first one, tall, handsome, strong, Saul, 
a prophet of God said to himself, surely this is the one who will be king next. He was wrong. Eventually, he came to see that God was picking David, the runt of the family, not even there for that procession of the great sons to be chosen. God would say, even to Samuel, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. God sees things and works in ways that on the outside we don't understand or predict. So Paul draws this conclusion from all of the complexity of this story that over and over plays out in ways we wouldn't have anticipated or written it ourselves. Paul says in verse 20, Who are you then to answer back to God? Can what is made, the clay, say to the one who is working it, the potter, you're doing this wrong? This isn't what I'm supposed to be? This isn't how it's supposed to go? Paul then concludes by throwing out a couple more Old Testament prophecies to up the stakes. You see it in these individual lives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see it in these grand moments of Israel's history, the story against Egypt. But Paul says it's true even today of what the gospel is doing amongst Jews and Gentiles. He quotes Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Those who were not beloved, I will call beloved. And then he quotes Isaiah, though the sons of Israel are like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Those who aren't my people will be my people, and those who are my people, some of them will prove not to be. Here's what I want you to see about what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 9. That first question, well, what about the future of Israel? Who can fully understand what God is doing? Who could predict it? Who could say what he should or shouldn't do? Do you not see the way that he has persevered in times and places where we would have abandoned them? He walked faithfully by them, showing mercy. Paul says, if you think that you can understand what God is doing, that you have a handle on how things should go in the future or even within your own day, you're naive and most assuredly wrong about what he is actually doing. God works in ways that so few people in those days understand. Who knows what will come of Israel's rejection? Who knows what will become of the Gentile response? Who knows what God has in store by the sovereignty of his promise and his salvation for the days to come? Paul also ends up saying something else, I think, in chapter 9. I don't think you can read this as somebody who's a believer without also saying, what is this grace that has allowed us to be in on it. This was Paul's point last chapter. How remarkable is this assurance that we have? That God would pick the little powerless nation to bring salvation to the world over the power of places like Egypt. Israel, this little helpless people in a desolate part of the world, this hill country, They should be gone like all of the other ancient religions around them. Have you met anybody practicing the Canaanite religion or the Moabite religion recently? Yet here Israel is, worshiping, holding on to this identity, this story, this promise. And here we are, maybe more profoundly, reading about their story, their days, the mercy that God had shown them, and most unexpectedly, finding ourselves now adopted in as sons and daughters of that promise. I mean, honestly, 
what are the odds that in 2020 in Springfield, Missouri, we would be reading about what God did with Israel at Mount Sinai? And that it would be shaping us and guiding us, that his spirit would be using that story to speak into our story and our lives. Who could have crafted this or planned this out? And surely if you had tried, your first approach would have been, let's make them big and powerful and mighty and conquer everything, and then they can pass on that history. But God does exactly the opposite. He leads them into exiles. He has them crushed by foreign powers. And yet still, this promise, this remnant remains. And here we are, reading the words of Hosea, reading the words of Isaiah, talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and seeing how Christ is fulfilling that promise given to them. I think chapter 9 helps you realize that by grace, by his mercy, you are in on something bigger and more unexpected than you ever could have had. For those of us who have grown up in this faith, it's easy to think that this is just the way things are. People believe we have churches all over Springfield. How would I not? My parents were Christians. I grew up in a church. But yet the fact that we are a part of this salvation, sons and daughters of that promise, is something that chapter 9 helps us recognize can be attributed to nothing but the sovereignty and the grace and the mercy of God alone. I have to tell you a little bit of a funny story as an illustration, but I promise there's a point to it. Um, This last week, we had a bonfire at our house because we had a large pile of brush that needed burning, uh, and I wanted to get it burnt. And I also happened to have a couple gallons of, I'm going to use the word fuel, because I actually don't know the laws in Christian County about what I might or might not have done. But I had a couple of old gallons that were no longer good to be used, and I decided... I can put some of that on the bonfire. I'll be very safe about this. We can light it. I'll solve two problems at once. Uh, So I did this very safely, as you could probably imagine. The kids were distanced. You know, I began pouring. I got probably a third of it poured out, and Roger was there. And I said, do you think that's too much? And he said, yeah, that's probably good, at which point I decided to pour a little bit more on the fire at that point. Uh, we had not been lit yet. So then very, they don't listen to anybody who would dispute the facts of this story. I se- everybody stepped back in a very safe distance, and I decided to light the fire. Uh, at which point, you can imagine, boom. <laughs> it lit very quickly. Uh, no one was hurt. Very safe again, let me remind you. Although I did scare kids in the process of doing it, and I'm pretty sure Roger will never go with me to a bonfire again, at least not one I'm in charge of. Uh, it ended up everything went fine. The night was great. We roasted marshmallows the whole bit. Uh, but I, uh, maybe more than I uh, expected, I realized uh, there was power, a force at play there that I had underestimated in that moment. I proved to myself, uh, more than just being stupid maybe, I proved to myself I should have been a little more cautious of what I was about to do. I promise there's a point to this. Um, You all have had plans, things that you've done, you thought you were in control of, you thought you had figured out, you went into, and then suddenly realized that this was something more than you had realized, something bigger, something you hadn't fully grasped, but yet there you were finding yourself in the midst of it. You grab hold of something and you suddenly realize you have hold of something much bigger, much more powerful than you thought it was. You have seriously underestimated things. I think that's what chapter 9 helps us recognize as believers. Those who come to church on Sundays and worship and read our Bible and start wondering about what does the future hold and what God should do and what God shouldn't do and how God might be at work in this situation or that situation. Chapter 9 reminds you that you have hold of something. You are a part of something. 
You are a participant in something so much bigger, so much greater, so much more than you ever could have imagined or understood, that you, by his sovereignty, by his grace, by his mercy, are a participant in something that you couldn't have planned or predicted or expected along the way. The right response to this, to God's sovereignty, to realizing just what you have hold of, is humility and wonder at what you are a participant in. This chapter, chapter 9, never leads us to a place of pride, never leads us to a place of cool detachment. Oh, we're in, we're now part of the promise, they're not. It never lays down cold lines of dogma. Well, you have to believe this, do this, you have to. There's places for that. But chapter 9, the way that it opens, Paul, anguish of heart, the depth of his sorrow for those who are lost. For us, those who did not deserve, who were not once his people, now called his people, who were once not beloved, now beloved. What do you do with a chapter like this other than wonder at it and marvel at it? That the future is God because the past has been God in ways that we wouldn't have expected or predicted. That his faithfulness, his promise, his mercy is the center of this story. Not our obedience, not our achievement, not what we would have him do tomorrow, but ways in which he is working amongst power, amongst nations, amongst rulers and leaders, amongst little unrecognized people, remnants, pulling together his promise and his story in ways that so few of us can fully comprehend. What Romans chapter 9 does is this. It leaves us with a broken heart, anguish, for those who are lost, who are outside of this, and at the same time hope and faith and confidence that in the midst of that, God works in ways we wouldn't have expected or predicted. Saving those we imagined unsavable. Humbling those of us who ever in moments begin to think it's about us, that our pride costs us something of what he gives by grace. We all end up in this strange juxtaposition like Paul, humbled, brokenhearted, desperate for those who are out, and at the same time, marveling and wondering and worshiping at the grace and mercy that has us in. Who knows what God has in store? Who knows what God is doing? Who knows, like Paul said in chapter 8, how all things will work together for good for those who believe. But we believe by his sovereignty, by his leading, by his mercy. Let's close together in prayer and we'll worship this morning. Heavenly Father, we do recognize this morning by these words God, we have so much more in you than we sometimes realize. That we're not just a part of a Sunday worship. We're not just a part of Bent Oak Church. But that by your grace and your promise and your calling, we are a part of your people. Your sons and your daughters. A part of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel. The God where we were once not your people we are your people by your grace and by your mercy so we're humbled this morning by it God 
worshiping you because of it this morning, God. That you would save us. That you would call us. That you would work this salvation so far from Jerusalem. As you said in Acts, to the ends of the earth, to Springfield, Missouri in 2020, where we are, that your gospel is still going forward and still changing hearts and still calling us deeper into this gift that we have in you. But God, like Paul, we also are brokenhearted this morning, God. We call out this morning for friends and family members who as of now have not bent a knee, whose hearts have not turned towards you. We don't lose hope because we trust you. We see the way that you were at work in lives and people and nations in unexpected ways. And by faith, we believe and hold on to that you're working in those same unexpected ways today. But like Paul, we can't help but express the anguish that we so often do feel. I pray, God, that like Paul, that heart would move us to go again and again to those who do not have the hope that we have in you. As Paul showed up at synagogue after synagogue, street corners and public places, to humble people out washing garments outside of town, to rulers and leaders sitting on thrones, that God, wherever you would lead us, wherever people will listen, we will share this amazing story of hope and grace that we have in you. And that by it, by your spirit, you would work miracles like you did in Paul's day to draw people to this salvation. So we hold these two, a heart longing to see more saved and a peace and a confidence that your sovereignty, that your mercy is at work in ways we don't understand nor could predict. So we worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.